Bob Marley's courageous performance at the Smile Jamaica concert catapulted him to international stardom. Almost overnight, he had been transformed from a reggae musician to a celebrity who demanded the world's attention. That newfound international fame resulted in a new level of scrutiny and rumors regarding who he truly was at his core. Today, we all know Bob Marley as a man who preached love and forgiveness. But those who knew him in the early 70s weren't entirely shocked that there had been an attempt on his life. The host of the podcast, Disgraceland, opens his episode on the Marley assassination by reading off a depiction of the singer's street persona of Screwface Marley. He begins by recognizing that the song Small Axe was beloved by everyone on the island that listened to it, yet it hadn't received the airplay that it deserved. Frustrated, Marley marched down to the radio station flanked by Alan Skill Cole, a six-foot-five professional footballer and a Trenchtown thug who went by the name of Take Life. The two men were armed with a cricket bat and a wicked-looking ratchet knife. The DJ working the console was told in no unambiguous terms that he was to play the newest Whalers album. As the instructions were being given, Skill slowly wrapped the cricket bat against his open palm while Take Life relaxed against a wall, visibly cleaning his nails with his knife. Flanked by his muscle, the scrawny, mixed-race Marley, whose Rasta dreadlocks were only just beginning to form, gave the worker an ultimatum, stating that if we don't hear small acts on JBC radio before an hour passed, we smash your windscreen. Then, if another hour passed and we don't hear small acts, we smash your face. It's difficult for anyone to overcome their upbringing. Marley details some of the pain that his childhood burdened him with in the song Talking Blues, off of his militant 1974 album Natty Dread. In it, he shares that he spent many nights with just a rock for a pillow while forced to sleep on the cold ground. Difficulties such as this made it seem to many that he wore a permanent screw, a callback to his nickname of Screwface which in the slang of the time meant that you were permanently pissed off. Within the same verse, Marley declares that his anger and disillusionment has him feeling like bombing a church. The scene described by Disgraceland was an instance of life imitating art. As Bunny Whaler had written the song as a challenge to the larger island acts that stood in their way of climbing up the corporate ladder to fame. Rolling Stone calls the song Small Axe an anthem of independence from the established music industry of Jamaica's big three labels. But climbing the ranks isn't as simple as merely sharpening the axe. Trevor Noah, the former host of The Daily Show, grew up in what he characterizes as one of South Africa's ghettos. He informs us that the hood is also a low-stress, comfortable life, all your mental energy goes into getting by, so you don't have to ask yourself any of the big questions. Who am I? Who am I supposed to be? Am I doing enough? 
In the hood, you can be a 40-year-old man living in your mom's house asking people for money, and it's not looked down on. You never feel like a failure in the hood, because someone's always worse off than you, and you don't feel like you need to do more, because the biggest success isn't that much higher than you either. It allows you to exist in a state of suspended animation. Although Bob Marley had already achieved enough success to have physically moved out of Trenchtown, he hadn't abandoned those he had grown up with. And for better or worse, that meant bringing the ghetto to Jamaica's uptown. His friends' descriptions of their time at 56 Hope Road signaled that they were more than content to remain in this state of suspended animation, which filled their lives with weed, love, and music. The attempt on his life shattered their shared illusion and resulted in Marley departing from Jamaica, creating a break between him and some of the island's most corrupting influences. It was during this time that Marley would become the source of light and peace for millions. Historian Roger Steffens points out that the music didn't really begin to reflect the assassination attempt that much until the survival album. He finally came to the conclusion that an eye for an eye just makes everybody blind, and that violence is not a solution to violence. The way we change the world is we change ourselves, and then radiate outward. He was singing the songs of the sufferers. Author and motivational speaker DJ Coyce understood the musician's journey when he wrote, that if you want to uplift and change your community, if you want to uplift and change your hood, ghetto, or township, change the stereotype. Our society is held back, not to progress or developing, because of the types of stereotypes we have within our community. If we break those stereotypes, we would find our freedom, happiness, progress, and success. It was a lesson that Marley would have to leave his community in order to fully grasp. 1976, the Rastafarian had reached his inflection point. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series is about Jamaica's most famous global export, Bob Marley. Episode number three, Marley's Exodus. Before we examine what Marley became, we have to understand the other path that the singer could have traveled. The crew had departed the Smile Jamaica concert relieved that there hadn't been another attempt at ending the life of the island's rising star. But the assumption remained that the killers and the person who put them up to the despicable act were still out there lying in wait. In the immediate aftermath, Marley holed up at another Island Records property with members of the Twelve Tribes, a fundamentalist roster group serving as his makeshift bodyguards. Guests checking up on him report seeing dreadlocked Rastas armed with machetes literally jumping out of the trees to interrogate their presence on the compound. 
From there, he and his entourage first traveled to the Bahamas, which, cognizant of what had happened, inquired whether or not Bob Marley wanted to apply for political asylum. He had made some powerful enemies, even calling out the CIA in the song Rat Race. In that song, he implores his listeners to not forget their history and that while political violence may fill your city, Rastas don't work for the CIA. In the wake of the concert, Manley's People's National Party cruised to an easy victory over Sega's JBL, the political party which had deep ties to the men who had conveniently abandoned their guard posts on the night of the Hope Road assault. The PNP movement had cashed in on the success of the concert to take 46 of the 60 available seats in Parliament. Even with all of the uncertainty swirling around him, Marley continued to diligently work on his music. Keyboardist Tyrone Downey met up with Marley in the Bahamas and recalls that this was the first time that he heard Marley sing the lyric, You think you're in heaven, but you're living in hell. That phrase became the focus of the 1978 song, Time Will Tell. Soon after, however, Marley made his way to London, a city that he was well-versed in. It would become his home for the next two years. Marley had first lived in the city in 1973, while the original Whalers Threesome recorded their final album, Burnin'. Esther Anderson had been Bob's preferred romantic partner during that period of his life. She was an actress who had headlined alongside acting royalty, including Sidney Poitier and Marlon Brando. She takes credit for helping to write the lyrics to Get Up, Stand Up, while the two lovers were flying over Haiti. The fact that Marley simultaneously worked on a number of songs across years meant that differing interpretations regarding the creation of his catalog remained fully up to interpretation. For instance, Lee Joff, who played the role of Anderson's beard during this period, understandably claims that his addition of But You Did Not Get the Deputy for Marley's hit I Shot the Sheriff came from the island's shared love of American westerns, particularly the good, the bad, and the ugly. Anderson, however, is fully convinced that I Shot the Sheriff is about birth control, stating creepily that Bob was always after me to breed and have a baby with him. In her world, the sheriff is the doctor prescribing her birth control, hence the line, Every time I plant a seed, he said, kill it before it grow. That interpretation flew over the head of the writers for the website American Songwriters, who note that feeling persecuted, Marley wrote the 1973 protest song about self-defense, meaning that the protagonist in the song saw the sheriff aiming at him, so he shot first. But the gun violence wasn't blind. He did not shoot the deputy, meaning that he was not indiscriminately firing at all people in uniform, just those looking to take his life. In 1974, Eric Clapton covered the song on his album 461 Ocean Boulevard. His soft rock version reached the top of the Billboard charts. As Disgraceland eloquently puts it, 
to rich white college kids, Clapton was God. And if God was covering a song written by some Jamaican, then they needed to figure out who this Bob Marley was. Clapton even asked him about what the lyrics meant, but Marley just responded that some of what people claim it is is true. Some of it isn't, but I'm not going to tell you which. Marley didn't reunite with Esther Anderson for his 1976 stay in the wake of the shooting. For this stay in England's capital, he was hooking up with the woman who many would identify as the love of his life. Cindy Breaksphere had come from a broken home in uptown Jamaica. She and her brother had found themselves living within Marley's compound at 56 Hope Road after they had been thrown out of their birth home. She worked odd jobs to make ends meet while chilling with the whalers and their ever-widening entourage. In 1976, Cindy, the already crowned Miss Jamaica, went on to win the title of Miss World, which subsequently required her to carry out a year's worth of pageant duties while stationed in London. Her attendance in the competition had been controversial, having participated in the event while her majority black nation was publicly protesting the fact that the pageant was only accessible to white women such as herself. She remembers playing hard to get in her initial encounters with the Rasta singer, claiming to have known from the first time that she ever spoke to him at length that a deep relationship would change her life permanently. The cat and mouse game between the two is believed to be the inspiration for the song Waiting in Vain. Rolling Stone writes, that Marley shows a rare romantic vulnerability on the song, which he's said to have struggled with vocally in the studio. Cindy was present in that studio the night that it was mixed, and the personal nature of the song might have explained the challenge in getting the lyrics down on tape. Marley's wife Rita refused to sing backup vocals for the song Turn Your Lights Down Low, another clear indication that Cindy was on his mind. His wife Rita was resigned to her husband's infidelity, claiming that it was something that I had to live with, even if I was jealous. I just had to be cool about it. The coziness between Bob and Cindy directly threatened the band's cohesion, with Beverly Kelso, one of Rita's closest friends in the band, claiming that it was as though Bob didn't remember stating, it's like they don't remember. They remember where they're coming from, but they don't remember who they start out with. The romantic soft ballads being produced during this love phase were better designed to catch the attention of white college students. But Marley wasn't yet willing to totally turn off his rebellious side. The biracial Rasta man remained obsessed with cracking the black audience that he associated with the most. The album Rasta Man Vibration had begun that process, but he would build on it with the masterpiece that was Exodus. Time magazine named it the best album of the 20th century, and Medium described the album as a tour de force, explaining that there were two distinct sides to Exodus, 
literally so, in its original vinyl format. On side one, the fire and brimstone was brought from simmering to boiling point as Marley offered a fiercely religious and politicized prescription for solving the ills of the world in a series of songs. Natural Mystic, So Much Things to Say, Guiltiness, The Heathen, each more messianic than the last. The side closed with the title track, a rippling, surging, seven-minute call to arms for a nation of displaced souls on the march to a new spiritual homeland. We know where we're going, we know where we're from, we're leaving Babylon, Marley sang against a cyclical riff that was turned like clay on a potter's wheel to perfection. Rolling Stone, however, couldn't initially come to grips with the sudden change in Marley's spiritual journey from militant to lover boy, writing in 1977 that there is a contradiction here between the enormous abilities of the Wailers, particularly the magnificent rhythm section, and the flatness of the material Bob Marley has given them to work with. The reviewer claims that the more I listen to this album, the more I am seduced by the playing of the band. At the same time, the connection I want to make with the music is subverted by overly familiar lyric themes unredeemed by wit or color and by the absence of emotion in Marley's voice. There are some well-crafted lines here, but given Marley's singing, they don't come across. The precise intelligence one hears in every note of music cannot make up for its lack of drama, and that lack is Marley's. This is quite an odd reaction. The review goes on to attempt to justify its reaction by digging into the band's now extensive catalog, continuing that, from the time the Wailers' first American album, Catch a Fire, was released, it was drama that carried the Wailers' music across the water and made it matter to people who had never heard of reggae and who may well have had to look up Jamaica on a map to figure out exactly where it was. Concrete Jungle was as dramatic as Muddy Waters' Rolling Stone. I Shot the Sheriff was a one-act play that crossed the boards in under five minutes. On the Wailers' disappointing last album, Rastaman Vibration, there was still war, where Marley summoned up visions of eternal conflict merely by chanting excerpts from a speech by Selassie. For that matter, Bob Marley on stage defines the kind of drama that grows naturally out of the music of a people who refuse to accept their native land as their true home, whose music again and again points them towards the temporally impossible but mystically necessary goal of a return to Africa. As with the overwhelming jaw guide on ex-whaler Peter Tosh's exciting new album, Equal Rights, Marley on stage is ominous, determined, full of barely suppressed violence. At the same time, he offers a suggestion of warmth, an unshakable confidence, of an invitation to the audience to follow him on a heroic quest. This harsh take on the album is shocking to hear today, as Marley's classics Jamming, One Love, and my own personal favorite Three Little Birds all emerged from this London-based recording. 
Dr. Gail McGarity hung around the band during this period and explained the doling of Marley's Edge by claiming that as a sufferer from an impoverished background, a young man who had lived on the rough streets of Trenchtown and been through hell, who had been mistreated by both his father and his mother, and had been through enough sufferation, Bob now had this beautiful girl, who many both in Jamaica and beyond Jamaica's borders as well wanted as his woman. He was living in the Chelsea district of London, the location that had just finished giving birth to punk rock. While it was by no means the posh West London district that it is today, it was a world away from Trenchtown. Each hit on Exodus captures this happy moment in Marley's life. One Love is a heartfelt message of unity, peace, and religious devotion that had first been recorded by the original Wailers. Rolling Stone teaches us that with a new headspace, Marley slowed down the original tempo and turned up the drums. The organization Neon Music claims that One Love is a song that transcends genres, cultures, and generations. It is a song expressing a vision of harmony and solidarity among all people, regardless of race, religion, or nationality. It is a song that has become a global anthem for social change, human rights, and environmental awareness. It is a song that has changed the world and continues to do so today. Rolling Stone tells us that although beloved for its feel-good groove, jammin' actually came from a place of pain. Marley wrote the song in exile in the Bahamas after the attempt on his life, undercutting its light-hearted track with lines like, No bullet can stop us now, we neither beg nor we won't bow. With the bullet still embedded in his arm, that lyric remains one of the most powerful in his arsenal. Three Little Birds referenced his most prominent backup vocalists, the I-3s. Far Out Magazine calls it the culminating moment of the masterpiece that was Exodus, as Marley puts a fine point on his message. In fact, don't worry about a thing, because every little thing is going to be alright, could just about be the epitaph of his entire life wrought out in simple lyrics of melodies pure and true. In addition to hanging around with the large population of Jamaican expats in London, Marley became far more aware of Africa during the production of Exodus, the continent of his mother's ancestors. He was a fully functioning Rastafarian at this point in his life. To his credit, his faith remained intact, even after the Rasta's guard Selassie, the emperor of Ethiopia, was overthrown by a military coup and died in confinement. Although the official cause of death was attributed to respiratory failure for the 84-year-old, it is clear that the emperor whom the Rastas worshipped as the returned messiah of Christianity was never going to escape his fate. They referred to his prison as, I've had enough of this world, and more than 60 of his closest confidants were executed by firing squad on what Ethiopia refers to as Black Saturday. 
1992, Selassie's bones were discovered hidden within a concrete slab. They were consecrated and finally laid to rest at a funeral, which was attended by Rita Marley. Yet the vast majority of Rastas refused to accept that the bones were the emperor's remains, instead believing that the reincarnated Christ couldn't have left behind physical evidence of his transition to the afterlife. The emperor's death had happened two years before Marley survived his own close encounter with death. While in London, Marley met with a number of the surviving Ethiopian royal family members that had managed to escape the coup d'etat. Stephens points out that he felt extremely close to them and protective of them, as he believed they were blood relations of a true and living God, and gave large donations to them. Bob's support for freedom movements throughout the continent was in sharp contrast to his unwavering support for the Ethiopian monarchy, whose lineage stretched back to King Solomon. During one of these encounters, he was gifted one of Selassie's rings, which had the Lion of Judah carrying the flag on it. The broadening of his horizons only encouraged him to embrace his faith more deeply. Soon, his performances became adorned with symbols such as the colors of the Rasta movement, which embraces the red, black, and green, each carrying distinct meanings. Red symbolizes the church triumphant and the blood of the persecuted black people. Black holds significance due to Jamaica's 98% African descent population, representing the color of their people's skin. Green signifies the beauty and vegetation of Ethiopia. Additionally, yellow or gold represents the wealth of their homeland. Although he enjoyed his life abroad, it was becoming clear to all that Jamaica still tugged on his heart. A sprawling world tour was organized to support the release of Exodus. Money was now steadily flowing into Marley's bank accounts, with him splitting the revenue 50-50 between him and the rest of the supporting group. In a clever decision, Marley kept 100% of the record publishing and writing royalties, despite the fact that everyone in his entourage worked collaboratively to produce the moments of inspiration that appear throughout their performances. The tour would be a disaster right from the beginning, as Marley had his toe stepped on in a Paris-based soccer game, and the subsequent visit to the doctor would spell horrific news for the musician. We'll go into far greater details regarding that diagnosis in our next episode. But for now, just know that the pain from the surgery forced him to cancel all of the tour's dates in America. This surprise opening up of his schedule allowed him to consider a proposed peace concert in Kingston. The story behind what would become known as the One Love Peace Concert is hardly to be believed, as two of the leading gunmen from Jamaica's gangland rivals happened to have been placed within the same prison cell. Rather than immediately killing each other, they began to compare notes. Stefan reveals to us that they soon realized that they were both being played by the political class in Jamaica, 
in a classic game of divide and conquer. It's as old as the Bible itself. Keep their proxies fighting among themselves in the lower ranks, and they won't drive up to Beverly Hills and attack the real enemies of the people. Upon their release from prison, an impromptu ceasefire broke out across the island. It was the hitmen turned diplomats who initially showed up at Bob's London residence with a concert proposal designed to celebrate his return. It was only after both gang leaders personally guaranteed his safety that he agreed to consider playing at the concert. Professor Matthew Smith explains Marley's thinking by stating that it was only when the powerful enforcers of Jamaica called upon him in England that he realized the full understanding of the power and influence of his music. His last concert in Jamaica had been done in part to prove to the residents of his nation that he wasn't willing to take part in the land's dirty politics. This time he would perform with the expressed purpose of changing the political game once and for all. The return to the island of his birth came eight weeks before the 1978 concert. He went on stage shortly after midnight with his publicist remembering that we were surrounded by guns, all brand new guns, hundreds and hundreds of them, machine guns. And I took Mick Jagger down there and we were on the side of the stage. Manly and Sega were there, but they weren't in the first seats. They were in the second row for protection. All the frickin' press were in front of them. They were gonna get shot first before the Prime Ministers. The Montreal Gazette's journalists on site concurs, claiming that the press felt like sitting pigeons. It was a weird backdrop for an event that was designed to call for peace. But few of those that had been assembled were ready to put down the class divisions that had been established during Jamaica's colonial period. Peter Tosh, the former whaler, for instance, spent half of his hour-long set railing against peace, claiming that peace is a diploma that gets you into the cemetery. Historian Rachel Mordecai goes deeper, explaining that Tosh's speech points to the racial oppression, the cultural denigration of black people that has warped Jamaican society. More significantly, he identifies Jamaica as a black country that has been under the misrule of a racist ideology. This is Tosh's claim for the fundamental blackness of the category Jamaican. In the early 21st century, it may seem unremarkable to refer to Jamaica as a black country. In 1978, it was perhaps becoming unremarkable. But as Stuart Hall contends, black is an identity which had to be learned, and could only be learned in a certain moment. In Jamaica, that moment is the 1970s. Tasha's statement occurs in a time when calling Jamaica a black country was still virulent, and when the question of a national racial identity was still a contested one, despite the multiracial national motto, out of many, one people. Tosh, in his rant, called black Jamaicans fools for falling for the white man's game, which had made them long to see one another die. For him, the concert was not calling out for peace, but justice. 
For his spoken desires, Tosh received a severe beating from Jamaica's police a few months later. The organizers of the peace meeting likewise were killed within three months of their challenge to the established way of life on the island. Marley, however, came out of the concert unscathed, stealing the headlines by inviting Jamaica's two rival leaders to join him up on stage. The three men, with Marley in the center, all joined hands and raised them up in a profound sense of togetherness a fitting image for the peaceful Jamaica that Marley now longed to see after having spent a peaceful year jamming out soft ballad hits while shacking up with the reigning Miss World. His failure at bringing about a sustained and lasting peace didn't alter his self-belief in his ability to spread the message of peace. Marley remained in Jamaica, and turned his efforts outward to the continent of Africa in order to unite the world in harmony. Stephens writes that as Bob became more and more aware of the liberation politics in Africa, his music would take a turn towards their struggles for independence, with songs like Africa Unite and Zimbabwe. He was keenly aware that without justice there could be no peace, and that it was only united youth in revolutionary movements who could succeed in the coming battles. In Jamaica, the newly invigorated Rastafari philosophy was leading the way. Africa, like Jamaica earlier in the decade, was fully entangled within the Cold War proxy wars between the United States and the Soviet Union. Egypt's Gamal Nasser and Kenya's Jomo Kenyatta attempted to form non-aligned movements. But the touch of the superpowers brought conflict throughout the lands as they were simultaneously experiencing the challenges that come along with decolonization. Marley explained his foray into the new mission by claiming to have had a revelation of one aim, one God, one destiny. With that as his motto, he professed that music was one part of the struggle to bring about lasting change. He had put down his small axe. In the coming fight, his guitar and voice would be the only weapons that he carried with him. His belief seemed to have emanated from a source of divinity, with Marley explaining that you open your mouth and God speaks out of you and you can't control that. I remember when Jah, the Rastafarian name for God, sent Moses to talk to him. Moses says that he can't talk, but Jah tells him to open your mouth and he will talk out of it. This is why Jah uses music, because you can't control it. Music is therefore the biggest gun. Tosh, however, had come to understand the world differently than his former bandmate in September of 1979 with Tosh speaking out on the so-called legendary peace concert, conversing with himself through a series of rhetorical questions that began by asking, anything change? Yes. More people dead? Yes, man. Peace? Then what do you think peace is? Peace is death. It's your passport to heaven. Marley would use his passport a lot in 1978. 
picking up extra dates to cover for the canceled tour the year prior. He mistakenly believed that his injured foot had healed and booked a 50-concert tour that took him from San Diego to Scandinavia. Seeing commercial opportunities at every corner, this tour makes up the two-disc live set of Babylon by Bus. Marley was amongst rock royalty at this point in his career, with audience members regularly referring to the experience of seeing him live as though they had been placed within a trance. Mick Jagger, the lead singer of the Rolling Stones, appears to have been caught up in such a spell during a Santa Barbara show that was scheduled on the same night as one of his own band's performances in Los Angeles. Jagger stayed for the entire show, delaying his departure via helicopter in order to soak in Marley's entire performance. His own set in front of 50,000 was delayed by hours. Incredibly, the Whalers had turned down the chance to open for the Stones in the early 70s. After the One Love Peace concert, Jagger, who was in attendance for the event, signed Peter Tosh to his own label. They would go on to sing a duet in You Gotta Walk, Don't Look Back. The Brit maintained a home in Jamaica and fully embraced reggae for its rhythmic beats. Unfortunately for fans of the genre, Jagger points to having limited experiments because of the fact that guitarist Keith Richards wasn't a fan. From Marley's extensive catalog, the Stones frontman lists Get Up Stand Up, No More Trouble, and War as his personal favorites. In 2011, he invited Marley's youngest son Damien to join his side project Super Heavy. Damien's mother was Cindy Breakspear. The 1978 tour finished without a hitch. It was organized to support his Kaya album, which the reviewer for Rolling Stone magazine claimed to represent the blandest set of reggae music I have ever heard. Still, the crowds were mesmerized by Jamaica's greatest export. In the UK, the album made it up to fourth on the Billboard charts. I Wanna Love You remains the most memorable song off of the album for most listeners. Bakaya remains the favored track by Marley enthusiasts. Rolling Stone neglects to list I Want to Love You in its listing of the 50 greatest Marley songs, but places Kaya in the 16th position. The title of the song is a slang term for marijuana, a theme that is infused throughout the album. The song is infectious, but essentially repeats the same lyrics throughout arguing that waking up and smoking will allow you to rise up above the rain clouds of life's everyday problems that seem to depress everyone else around us. Rolling Stone calls it a gorgeous love song to a particular variety of excellent ganja. Kaya is perhaps Marley's finest tune about the mind-expanding substance with which his music has become inextricably linked. Kaya was conjured by Marley and his producer Lee Scratch Perry in 1971, during a trip to visit the latter's mother in Jamaica's rural Hanover Parish. Inspired by the herb and indulging in the freedom afforded him outside Kingston, Marley came up with a dreamy ode to getting so high I even touched the sky and feeling all right. 
lyrical allusion to needing Kaya because the rain has fallen was inspired by Marley and Perry running out of weed just before a storm. They sent Perry's little brother on his bike to get them more. Sometimes the best songs are about the simple oddities that life throws at us. Upon the tour's end, he returned back to his home at 56 Hope Road, literally returning to the scene of what had been one of the worst nights of his life. Instead of seeing death and destruction, he reflected upon the positive time that he had experienced while living among Kingston's elite. He finished his own recording studio on the property, achieving a lifelong dream. He would record the album Survival there, with Stefan telling us that his empire was growing nicely, with a pressing plant, distribution company, and plans to expand the label to include other artists as well. Barry Gordy's success with Motown, a completely black-owned corporation, was Bob's inspiration, and he had broadly ambitious ideas for the future. Unbeknownst to him, however, was the fact that his time on this planet was coming to an abrupt end. We will examine the final years of Marley's life in our next episode. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.